Welcome to the Zeal Interestings podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from the week. I'm your host, Chris White. Today, I've got a special guest, Brian Zambrano. He's a cloud architecture lead at Very. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, hey, thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Yep, we've known each other for a little while, and then I saw that you published a book recently. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I think it was, uh, we put the little bow on the book and published it in April. So it's been out for a few months now. Out for a couple months. And so the book's topic is on serverless architecture and best practices. So how long have you been working in the realm of serverless architecture to a large degree? That is so that's an interesting question, one which I don't actually don't know the exact answer. But I remember when kind of serverless became a thing. I think it was around the time that AWS first came out with Lambda, which was mm-hmm. you know functions as a service. And then after that, they came out with API Gateway. I think I might, I might have that backwards, but the bottom line is that when those two things came out, or, you know, or were available, all of a sudden it was possible to write a, an API, like a web API, HTTP or HTTPS API, without managing your own servers. And so that, in my viewpoint, that was kind of when I noticed this whole serverless term, be, uh, you know, being born. And that's I think when I noticed it and started using it. We used it at work for something small, and then since then I've just been, you know, the, my, my usage of it has been increasing. Awesome, awesome. So our uh, our audience cr- crosses a wide range of people that are either directly involved in product development or just uh, in a related field. Can you kind of break down what serverless architecture is and how it forks away from what we used to do in the past? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think this is one of those things where th- that question gets asked all over the place, podcasts, and you know, different places, and it, it, everyone's got slightly different answers. So I'll give I'll give you my answer. But you know, typically, you know, back in the days. Think back maybe even 10 years ago or 15 years ago when the cloud wasn't like as prevalent as it is today. And so what people would do if you needed something, you need to run some piece of software or some server process is you would, you know, get a actual physical machine, like a, a server and you, you go put it in a colo facility and plug it in and connect to the network and then go install your software and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Put it in a colo facility if one exists near you or just your closet, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Or you'd have to go like rent one from somebody, right? It's like there were companies who would go and rent you, you know, a part of or an entire server. And it was a, maybe a few hundred bucks to get your own machine. And if you had something which you, you you want to dabble around with, like that's expensive, even if you're renting it. And you know, then the cloud came along, and now you can just create your own virtual machine, and that you know, in effect gives you your own computer, your own server, and you pay for you know having that machine up and running, and then you can kill it, and you don't pay for it anymore. And so that's that was wonderful. But you Definitely. know, oftentimes, like think about writing like a chat bot, right? Like. You have you have to have some server process somewhere, which is listening for messages from from whatever whatever messaging platform you're using, Slack or HipChat or, or whatever. And so, you know, in, in that case, like a server is going to be idle if, if its only job is dealing with the, is is doing the intelligence part between the Slack bot. It's going to be sitting there idle, doing nothing for you know probably ninety nine point nine percent of the time. And so you've got to pay for that. If you're running a virtual machine, like you're paying for your system to be up and running and available, even though it's not really doing anything. So in the serverless model, and this is a very, very high level, but like in a serverless model, um, building a Slack bot in a serverless fashion is fantastic because what you do is you don't actually run a server. What you do is you give your code to a provider. So whether that's Amazon, and maybe for my examples, I'll just use Amazon because it's what I'm familiar with. But as you're... Google Cloud, they have their own versions of, of functions as a service. And so rather than spinning a, ser- a server and putting your code there, you give your code to one of these providers, and then they will actually execute your code when 
uh, you want it to be executed. So in my Slackbot example, you know, you would wire up some some endpoints to uh, you know, let's say AWS, and then when AWS receives a call from your Slackbot, it would go and run your code. You'd get charged for that execution or the invocation, and then responsibility returns. And your function basically goes away and, and, it, and it's done. And it can do that over and over and over again. So the big thing is you're not really managing a, an, an operating system anymore. You're just giving code to somebody else to run on your behalf. So I'm getting like two benefits out of that description. The first benefit is that in the metered billing world, instead of paying for a server for you know 24 by 7 by 365, you're only paying for that time that your code is actually running. But also, you don't have to think about like what operating system is is my server running? How is my application configured in that operating system? And how is the server process like all the all the like gotchas that people that are new to running servers and web servers get hit by? Like, oh, my server rebooted and none of my things ran because I didn't have startup scripts set up correctly. It seems like you avoid those problems. Yep. Yeah, and it, that's pretty much all accurate. I mean, there you know you're you still are on an operating system. So you know, as an example, like if you're going to compile, if you're going to, if you need some libraries, like let's say you need some bindings to a database, you need to actually go and, you know, package up your code with those bindings to your database. So you have to make sure that those bindings are of the right architecture, right? Like you can't compile bindings on uh, Windows or your Mac and then expect it to run it in the serverless environment because it runs on a Linux operating system, uh, you know, ultimately. But by and large, yeah, all those other things, like you don't have to worry about it. Like, of course, there's an operating system somewhere. You don't manage it. You don't need to worry about this thing being highly available. Like the your your cloud provider of choice will will deal with that for you. You know, you yeah. It's like you just there's so many things which you don't have to worry about anymore. And you know, I I'm a big fan because I find myself being able to get to the actual core of my problem or my application much 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 quicker than in the traditional server based model. Yeah, so let's go into some more of the benefits. I, I was just wondering, like, what kinds of orgs should really embrace serverless, or is it just like a universal thing? Like, should should startups be looking at this, or sh- is it more of a benefit for big orgs that you know run lots of twenty four seven servers? Uh, who get, who gets the most benefit out of this? Do you think? I think it really could be anyone. I think it really comes down to the actual problem at hand, or like you know, what are you trying? What problem are you trying to solve? I've seen a lot of use cases or a lot of examples of very large companies moving to a serverless architecture and reaping pretty big rewards. There was one example from Amazon, and I forget who it was. I think it was like Freddie Mac or someone, or one of those big financial companies. And they had some some deadline for some big project. They had it all, I think, planned out with Kafka and you know, this big system, and, and they didn't have the, the, the timeline was a little bit too aggressive. They tried it on serverless and we were able to produce it um, in a relatively short amount of time and the thing worked great and was very inexpensive to operate. At the same time, I think for, for startups, it's a great thing to look into because again, like you can, it takes away a lot of the burdens that you face with, you know, server-based systems where how to deploy code, that's taken care of for you for the most part. Like you don't have to worry about that. If it's going to be up and running all the time, like that's taken care of for you. The costs, the costs are for the most part, for a startup, it's basically free. I mean, if you get like a, a million invocations uh, for free a month, gotcha. uh, it's a, the, the billing's kind of weird. But it's a, I think it's a million gigabyte seconds. So it kind of depends on how much memory you're consuming. But for all intents and purposes, if you've got, you know, if you're a startup, you're not going to have any customers at the beginning. So you, you can do this uh, quite inexpensively from the beginning. Right, right. It helps with that that scaling issue. It feels like kind of an evolution of of Heroku's model, where they took away that burden of 
setting up servers, even though it's acknowledged that there's a server and they're handling most of the deployment, although like the deployment responsibilities are kind of blended between the the developer and the platform. But generally you're it's it's kind of it feels like a step in between, right? Where the deployment is is kind of a blended responsibility and the servers are running and they're generally someone else's responsibility, but you have control over them to where now there are just no servers and the whole concept of of the platform that it runs on is completely abstracted away, right? Yep, yeah, yeah, for the most part. I think the the one uh, the one big difference that I would say between those two models like Heroku versus, you know, functions as a service is that, you know, in the Heroku model, you still have code sitting there idling which you're paying for, yeah, uh, which is, you know, could potentially be doing nothing. Functions as a service is a very good, I think, thing to kind of, you know, use as a mental model because it's like literally it's a function which gets called for you. There's no, there's no server process that's just sitting there ready to go on your behalf when it, when the time is right. So that, that kind of leads to questions about like code architecture kind of questions. Norm, a lot of startups traditionally use like traditional web frameworks like Express or Rails or, you know, Phoenix on a f- purely f- function as a service platform, are there challenges around just bootstrapping and having all of your environmental systems, database connections available or, or are there good patterns for that? Yeah, I think in terms of like, you know, configuring your system. So your question is like mostly around like, how do you configure or get set up for a serverless architecture? Right, right. Uh, you know, your functions, you want to be able to access all the benefits of a modern environment like, you know, databases, shared state, things like what what is coming over from browser request kind of th- patterns, like all the classic web framework patterns that someone who uses a, a popular web framework might be used to using, are those those patterns exist inside of, or are those patterns well addressed by some of the approaches that people use? Yeah, to some degree, I think things, some certain things I think with, with a serverless architecture remain exactly the same, like connecting to a database or connecting to whatever, a caching system or you know, networking, things like that. Most of those things don't change at all. Um, and for that, the big thing there, I think, with, with a serverless design is um, leverage environment variables uh, heavily for all of your configuration. Yeah. Um, if, if you set, set that up from like the very, very beginning, you're in really good shape because it's very easy, even if you wanted to go off of a serverless system and onto a, a server-based or a virtual machine-based system or architecture, then you know, changing things around is pretty, sim- pretty simple. The other thing I think there is, you know, like when we're, when we use frameworks is, yeah, we're used to these frameworks dealing with a lot of things for us automatically. I don't know what a good example would be, but, um, actually I know one. I'm like, you know, like opening and closing database connections, right? Like usually, like let's say a, a Django or a Phoenix or a Rails or whatever, like that will be handled for you and you really don't need to think about it. Right, you just use it as if that was always present in in your code. Yep, it's like you just you fire up your ORM and you you start making some queries or creating new like model records, etc. And and you can pretty much be guaranteed also like you know when the when the response is sent back to the client, you know that database connection is going to be cleaned up and handled or pooled or, or whatever. But there's that cycle there, and that's the whole request response cycle is done for you automatically. That's not true with serverless. Serverless is a much or a, you know I should say like Lambda or or functions like. In, in that model, like there's not necessarily just because you can run like you know an API like on, in a serverless architecture doesn't mean you can only run that. Like there's a lot of different things you can you can do in a serverless manner. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, like there's not a lot of helpers for you that you can just pull off the shelf and start reaping all these benefits like you can with like with Rails or Phoenix or, or what have you. And so like you're, usually you're on the hook for those things. Like it's really mm-hmm. easy 
to connect to a database, but then you've got to clean up that connection if you want to close it or if you want to pool it or, or, or things like that. So you get a lot of, you know, kind of, it, I think my mentality now is like you, you kind of trade off some development benefits like you get with these mm-hmm. frameworks for operational benefits. Like now you don't really have to worry about operating the systems, but you do have to worry about some of the other things that the frameworks would handle for you automatically. So you're on, you're on the hook for that. Gotcha. And you wouldn't want to necessarily like do the equivalent of booting up a whole big web framework for every every single individual time you were handling a request because that that's very time consuming, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, and I think you know there's a the, you know serverless is great. I love it. I'm a, I'm a big fan, but there are times to use it and times not to use it. Okay. But the, the times not to use it, we can go through some of them. But yeah. I think one of them is that if if you're building a system and you just want like that typical request response cycle, like someone goes to a page and you you go and get some data from the database and you render it in a template and you spit back out HTML to your to your uh, to your clients, I would not use serverless for that. Like mm-hmm. if you, on the other hand, if you want to write like a single page app and whatever React or Elm or something other some other cool thing, and you want some backend API to to you know to handle all your front end requests. Then I think doing the back end in a serverless fashion and then keeping your front end separate, I think that's a great pattern. Because at that point, like the you know, the back end is just handling business logic, connection to the database, maybe some caching, et cetera, et cetera, all the HTTP stuff, headers and things like that. But it's not gonna really gonna care, but it's not you're not gonna be dealing with rendering templates and, and all the that other stuff. Gotcha. So so the idea is like if you need all the benefits of a big web framework, then you you're probably still in at least in twenty eighteen better off using a very large web framework instead of trying to force that use case into the serverless model. But if you just need a lightweight API to do these common tasks that a single page app is uh, counting on, then that that's probably more of its uh, strength. Yeah, yeah. That, at least that's that's kind of how I see it right now. And I've even written you know, backend systems where we don't even use an, R- an ORM. Like it's small enough to where we can just write raw SQL. And I still like that. Also, it's like it, you know, at, at a certain point, like there's writing raw SQL is is kind of nice because you know exactly what you're doing. There's you know, if you're if the number of things which you need to support for your API are small enough, like you can do that and and tune those queries as, as you need to. And so, what uh, what are some of the ways to like exercise the strength of serverless? Do people tend to use as far as like patterns for sending data back to the server, do people tend to use like more message queue style or like batched queuing for like um, mutations to like the database kind of things? Or are there any like dangers in complex like uh, data handling when you're sending back data to the server? And are you talking about like it, like in an, like maybe like a web API kind yeah, of like architecture a- or just like anything in general? It could be general, but for example, in a web API, if you were, you know, if it was a web API tied to like some kind of user input form and there was just a lot of business logic surrounding that, or if it, or if it needed to spawn off additional work that some kind of larger infrastructure would do, mm-hmm. how do people organize that work in serverless? Is there like bad patterns that, that people could fall into that would not work very well? Also, it's a little bit hard to answer. I'm not sure, to uh-huh. be honest, exactly. I, mean, I think, you know, like, you know, if you want, like, let's say you wanted to have someone fill out like a web form and they were going to set for your, I don't know, like your email list or something like that. Sure. I think one thing which is really neat about, about, you know, this, these type of architectures is that you can do a lot of, um, e- you know, event driven programming quite easily. And if you think about it, a serverless endpoint or a serverless, you know, architecture, even if it's a, if it's a, if it's a web API, it is an event driven system. 
the events that your Lambda functions are triggered off of, in that case, happen to be an HTTP call or HTTPS call. But the fact remains that it's just some event which gets triggered, your code executes, and then you go off and you can do whatever you want. And so, you know, in that model, you know, let's say someone you know, submits their username or their, their, their name and their email, and you want to go and talk to another system to go and sign them up, and maybe that third-party system you don't have confidence in, or maybe it's slow or whatever. I mean, in that case, like what you could do is receive the data from the user, make another call to another system. I mean, what you could do is you know, trigger like um, either an SNS notification or SNS event, a simple notification system, mm-hmm. or you could invoke a different Lambda function asynchronously and just give it that payload. When you do that, you're basically just trigger, triggering an event. At that point, your code can do finish off the HTTP response, hand it back to the client, and say like, "Hey, great, we've got your submission. Um, thanks for signing up." And now, you know that other event which you've triggered can go off on its merry way and do whatever behind the scenes. Gotcha. You could also throw it onto a queue if you wanted to, and kind of handle it like in a different fashion. So, the, I think the thing which is really neat here is that you're you're only limited kind of by your imagination in terms of mm-hmm. how you glue all these systems together. But you know, doing asynchronous programming or event-driven programming like that is, I find it quite easy. I guess like I had a preconception in my brain, like, is it mandatory to do like things more asynchronously? Like we tend to, in like long running servers, I found that it's easy to get away with like some like slow responses, even though that's not ideal. But it seems like, there's not, there's just really no difference, right? Like you're, you still have the same kind of constraints as if you were, as if you had a long running server, except the implementation is a little different, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you could write, yeah, I mean, you, you can, you can architect your code however you want to. And so, yeah. you know, things like that. It's like, yeah, if you want to, if you want to fire off like some sort of event or put something on a queue or whatever for some process, like you can do that. Or if you want to sit there and block and do something which takes a while and then get back, get back to the user, you can do that too. The one big difference between a server-based system and a serverless system is that the, these functions as a service will have a maximum um, duration which they can which they can run within, mm-hmm. or you know, they have a maximum timeout value. I think on, on Amazon that's five minutes. On other systems, I think it's it's roughly the same, give or take like a few minutes. But you're really limited by you know you are there is a maximum uh, there is an upper limit for execution duration mm-hmm. and for and for memory as well. Uh, and like I said, for Amazon it's five minutes, and I believe now it's three gigs of memory. Gotcha. That you can max it out to. So if people are using this for pretty complex data processing tasks that aren't necessarily tied to individual HTTP requests, they're just like background tasks of some nature. It's it might be possible to run into that limit while you're doing some kind of intensive data manipulation, and you would have to architect it to avoid that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think in my book, I go through like a, a MapReduce example uh, where I'm literally like implementing a MapReduce pattern uh, that it works great in during the during the course of writing that chapter. I did run into that though because the data in that model there's a final reduce step, and mm-hmm. so that final reduce step has to have. Pretty much, you know, it has to have all the of the the output from the previous mappers to kind of yeah. distort down. So your memory size ballooned above that limit. Exactly. Even if the final result was going to be smaller than that, like three gigs, you still had to load up all these this data from all the mappers to kind of mush it all into one one final result set. So that's definitely possible to hit. And there there are limitations to to, to lambda functions and to other functions as a service for sure. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so before we wrap up, are there any other best practices? What are your favoriteest favorite best practices for for server serverless? Yeah, my favoriteest favoriteest. Um, 
definitely like environment variables for configuration. That is, that's like one key thing. The other pattern that I fall into, and this is just the way I deal with it, is I use the serverless framework. If you're not familiar with it, just go to serverless.com. It's a framework which makes developing serverless systems easier. It's kind of like a, it's a framework, but it's not necessarily, like, it's not a web framework. It's a framework for serverless applications. Um, so I use that and I use Docker to actually build all of my libraries in the, in the Python world when we're compiling down like some binaries for database bindings or, or whatever else, any C bindings that needs to be on the same architecture as it needs to be on a Linux based system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just run a Docker image, like an Ubuntu image to do all that, that all that compilation. And so, yeah, that's been a really great pattern. And then I think the other nice thing was about using Docker is that it's very easy to inject environment variables into a, a Docker container. And so I just store different, uh, different deployments or different stacks. I store their environment variables in different files. And so then for me, it's very easy to change between like production and QA and dev by just loading up a different environments file. And all of a sudden, I, can, I have you know, all, all that I need to actually deploy to a particular stack. So that's been really handy. I like that pattern quite a bit. Gotcha. I, I guess that's something that one doesn't think about too much when you're working on a, like a traditional web framework like Rails or, or Django or stuff. Like you don't consider the compilation steps as part of the the kind of in in your workflow dev workflow that's a that's a like a release step right uh, that's, mm-hmm. that usually these web frameworks have like tool chains for and those tool chains are automated and tied to to and are executed on the servers that are going to to receive these deployments but i guess with serverless you need to more consider like getting that compiled and ready to go beforehand that's the case mhm yep yep Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think you know with that pattern also of you know using Docker like you know, at work we we use Circle CI uh, for all of our CI and so the deployment process is exactly the same whether it, using the Docker model it's exactly the same whether Docker you know you're doing it from your own machine or if you're doing it to with Circle CI and we like to do it with Circle CI because then you know we can upload all of our environment files there we use our own home baked Docker image to do the deployment we've got a little make file which which runs our commands but um, that pattern's worked out really, really nicely. So, you know, whenever there's a merge to master, Circle CI is doing the same steps that we would do our own computers if we were going to deploy it for our, from our own systems. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I want to also ask before we wrap up, what was your experience writing and publishing a book? <laughs> it was a long haul. That was yeah. the experience. It was it's one of those things where I'm really glad I did it. It was, I learned a ton, honestly. Um, it was really fun. And I think it, uh, Definitely made me a better developer and a better writer. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for sure. I mean, each chapter that I go through, there's a, I try to get like, I'm a big believer in examples, like, you know, learn by example mm-hmm. or teach by example. And so each chapter has real examples, which I came up with, which I ran, which I developed. And some of them were easier than others. The MapReduce chapter was one of those harder ones because the, you know, my initial data set that I was trying to, to use was was bigger than anticipated, so yeah, it was it was fun. I'm glad it's done, and um, maybe I'll do it again. But I'm not first in line for the for the next book. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Book book authoring is is not something that you're necessarily auto- already signed up for the next one on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They the, yeah. Packet Publishing keeps uh, they keep asking me, hey, how about this one? And so I'm I'm kind of saying thank you, but I need a break for now. So we'll see. Sounds good. We'll see. We'll see. Well, definitely we'll include a link to your book in the show notes. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring to our audience's attention or promote? 
Maybe just my company, uh, Very. We're, my company is called Very. We're a distributed remote first company and we build lots of cool things for people. Uh, we focus mainly on blockchain, IoT, and data science. And we're also doing a whole bunch of other things in uh, the cloud you know, architecture and development. Uh, so we do all, all kinds of very cool things, a great group of people. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Brian. And thank you everyone else for listening. If you want even more of our interestings, please sign up for our newsletter at codingzeal.com slash interestings. We take all the, all the things that we notice throughout the week and kind of sum them up and make them easy to consume. Or you can follow us on Twitter at codingzeal. Thank you very much.